Thank you, Pastor Cody. Um, yeah, I'm hoping the stream continues to be at this quality. You know, it's. <laughs> I'm going to stand up here and make the argument today that there's 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 no um, what's the word excuse or there's no replacement for uh, you know for in-person worship and yet <laughs> sometimes it's nice to have the stream work just in case so um, kids you are welcome to go with Pastor Debbie out the back um, to Children's Church that way we are going to be in John chapter 6 verses 51 down through 59 I may start it just a couple verses ahead of where the, this is today. But I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This is Jesus speaking. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless, the, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, When I was um, sort of leaving high school, stretching my wings and flying all the way to the exact same place my parents had stretched their wings and flown when they left high school, and the same place my grandparents had stretched their wings and flown when they left high school. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how far I was actually flying from home by going to Point Loma, but went to college, um, and I had had like a nice, good, you know, Jesus-y upbringing. Um, um, churches, probably a lot like the ones that you've been a part of, focused on the Word, right, on Scripture. I'll never forget Janice Karahadian, who was a tiny little Armenian woman, <laughs> and would always come up to us and take these little pieces of paper that had memory verses on them and press them into our palms. And she would explain She'd expect us to have them memorized by the next day. It was, and there was so much like that in the churches that I grew up in. Um, Janice was such a sort of warrior of the word, wanted people to have it planted deep in their hearts. Um, you know, preaching, Bible studies, Sunday schools, everything was, was really centered on the Bible. Um, and then there was kind of this other edge, if you got really sort of weird in a good way. Um, where now you're looking for the active experience of God in your life through his spirit. 
right? The actual voice of God. And we knew people, um, I mean, my, my parents are wonderful Christians um, and active believers and um, I knew people who just, you know, had this real sense of God has spoken to me. God has talked to me. It was like the, the spirit was actually a sort of alive in some way. So there are these two real ways that we had this sense that if you want to encounter the Lord, this is how you do it. Right? You do it through the Word, through the Bible, and then you do it through listening closely um, to the Spirit. And I, 100%, I'm all about both of those. Right? When I left my home for high school and went to college, I, what I discovered is that there's kind of this whole other world. <laughs> um, and it's not that it's a denial of those ways of encountering the Lord, um, but it is a little bit more dependent on the whole church, right? It's a little more dependent. Um, both the Bible and listening to the Spirit are things that I can primarily do by myself. I need to have good preachers and teachers and things like that, but primarily, ultimately, at the end of the day, I, I can go to my room and I can close the door and lock it and make sure my wife and my kids are far, far away from me or something. And I can sit down with the Word or I can listen to the Spirit um, and I can do that alone. What I discovered when I went away to school and then have just continued, it's just kind of continued to unfold for me were these ways and what I was so hungry, desperate for, my soul was starved for, were the ways that I could do that in a community. That it wasn't just that God had called me Jeffrey, right? Um, but it was that God had called me into the life of his people and really was calling his people, but I was a part of something bigger than myself. Right? So what I discovered were churches that celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. Okay? My best memory of the Lord's Supper growing up was that we used to have, you know, the matzo crackers, those like big flat things. So we would, for whatever reason, we had matzo crackers and somebody did not break sufficiently, <laughs> break those matzo crackers into into small enough pieces. So I reached in and pulled out just about half of one of those things. So you're supposed to get a piece that's like this big, you know, but the piece that I grabbed was, you know, about that big. And I think I was 11 years old and could not contain myself. This was just the funniest thing that had ever happened. Um, but with this celebration of the Lord's Supper every week, there was this real sense that Jesus was present, not just by speaking to me, but in something that we actively did as a people. Right? And that if the church did not gather to do it, then it wouldn't get done. I know that seems like an obvious thing. But if it's something that God has actually commanded us to do, then that's a problem. Right? We've experienced this in the last year and a half. We worship less when we don't get together. I don't care how many church live streams you plugged into on Sunday morning when everybody was on YouTube. We worship less. We do. We consume it through a screen. We participate in it when we're together. Now, we can still consume it when we're together, right? but we participate, it, participate in it in a different way. So these two things really began to show up for me, and I was reminded this week as I sat with a fellow believer and confess sin. And he used the words of Scripture to tell me that I was forgiven. I was brought to tears. Because in 1 John it says, confess your sins to one another. 
right? And that when you confess your sins to one another, then he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins. And it was that objective sort of word that, that it wasn't about how I felt about it. It was that Jesus said it, right? It wasn't about how I felt about it. It was about Jesus keeping his promises. And I can trust that Jesus will keep his promises. My feelings are all over the place. From the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, my feelings are like in 14 different counties. <laughs> but Jesus' words are sure. And so when he says things, we can trust and believe and should live our lives by those words. So as I was this 18, 19-year-old going to school, there were two things that I, I don't know that I had seen, and I don't mean this as a critique so much. It just was my experience at the time. I was so desperate to discover Jesus in the Lord's table and in service. Right, so in my case, that worked out to service with the poor. I did a lot of homeless ministry in college. And really, that was rooted in the Word. That was rooted in places like John 6 to the table and Matthew 25, service to others. Right? These were concrete things that I had not experienced in my faith. Something solid and immovable. We may not always be able to sort out some of the details here. But we know that when Jesus says things like, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We know there's something immutable, there's something true, there's something that we can't just tweak and play with about that. We know that when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That is a profound statement. And it's something we misunderstand so deeply, in part because we misunderstand completely the world that Jesus lived in and the world that most people have lived in. So most of us think that when we come to worship, we're coming to express our praise, express our thanks, express our gratitude, right? We come as an act of self-expression much of the time. And that's a really new way of understanding worship. That's not the way Jesus understood worship. In fact, the Jews who dispute with this, right, they're upset about it. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What do you mean? <laughs> is this cannibalism that you're advocating? This is crazy, you can't give us your flesh to eat, right? And yet Jesus does not back off of this. In fact, he drills down. He says, truly, truly. I looked up all the places that Jesus says, truly, truly. Okay? The actual word behind that is amen. <laughs> amen, amen. I say unto you, right? That's what truly, truly is. And then he doesn't just say eat, right? There's kind of two words for eat in this passage. The one is the normal one. You eat bread, you probably ate breakfast, right? Hopefully you're going to eat lunch, okay? But then he drills down into an even, once the Jews kind of push back, he goes even further. He uses this word that means like gnaw, like a dog on a bone, right? That unless you chew and gnaw on my flesh, 
And so the Jews who are just like, I mean, if, if you're a Jewish person, and especially if you're a Jewish leader, you were very, very careful about what you ate, right? Your whole, in some ways, identity was built around your diet. I know that sounds crazy today, all you vegans and ketos and vegetarians and, um, <laughs> right? But in, in, in the Jewish religion, diet was everything, everything. It wasn't just what you ate, right? You weren't supposed to eat pig because it doesn't have a cloven hoof and it doesn't chew the cud. You weren't supposed to eat camels, I think, or something. I don't know. Anyway, there's all kinds of animals you're not supposed to eat, and you're not supposed to eat meat along with milk, right? So hamburger's cool, cheeseburger, no way, right? There's all this kind of stuff, all right? And Jesus walks into this context that he knows very well that he grew up in, and he breaks all the rules in some way. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He calls himself true food and true drink. And, and I read that, and part of me wants to back off of it and go, okay, he, it's a metaphor. He doesn't really mean it, right? He doesn't really mean you've got to eat and drink in order to worship. He doesn't really mean that if you want to have life in me, then eating and drinking is necessary. And yet I'm reading his words, and I was thinking, what if my brother, who lives down in Los Angeles, what if my brother said to me, truly, truly, I'm coming to Thanksgiving. Truly, truly, I'm going to show up. You can eat with me. You can touch me. I will be presence itself. In fact, if you don't come to that dinner table on Thanksgiving what is it, afternoon, <laughs> then you won't be able to eat with me. That, that is where I'm going to be. And if you want to be in my presence, you must be there. And then I go, man, I don't think he means it, right? <laughs> I, that's what Jesus says about himself being the bread of life. It's like he keeps going in, and he, keep, and he says, in fact, if you don't eat me, and if you don't drink my blood, you won't have life. Like, there's no way for him to be clearer or more explicit about this. He's given every opportunity to back off, and yet he doesn't. He's given every opportunity to make it metaphorical, make it symbolic, and yet he doesn't. The Jews were so careful with their eating. They were careful with what they ate, but also, if you know the scriptures, they were really careful with who they ate with, right? So it wasn't just a matter of, I don't eat cheeseburgers, and I don't eat bacon, and I certainly don't eat bacon cheeseburgers, right? But it was a matter of, I don't even eat good Jewish food with Gentiles. I don't sit down at the table with people who I know eat differently than me. Now, why would that be? I mean, imagine. Why would you possibly want to restrict who you ate with? Well, you restrict who you eat with because if you eat with somebody, you start eating like them. It doesn't take too long of sharing meals with people before all of a sudden, well, like, I'm going to try that bacon. Right? I'm, it's just like a little bite of that cheeseburger. Right? 
And then pretty soon you're sitting at that table and it's your son and their daughter are now thinking about getting married because they've shared so many wonderful meals together, right? So they weren't just careful about what they ate. They were careful about who they ate with. And good Jews did not eat with people who didn't keep kosher. Good Jews didn't eat with people who didn't follow the same dietary rules as them because that breaks down that sort of social separateness, right? But it wasn't just the Jews who did this. Eating means communion. If you're going to share a table with somebody, it means, in some sense, agreement. It means fellowship. It's why we have potlucks here. I mean, we ought to do it more than we do, but it's, it's why we eat together. It's why we eat together on Wednesday mornings after we come and we pray. We can sit in a circle and talk to each other, but to actually sit down and eat with each other makes a difference, right? Sharing a table develops oneness. It develops deeper association. In fact, you know what the oldest archaeological sites that they can find are? It's not settlements or towns where people lived. It's ritual places where people gathered to share meals. It's places where this tribe and that family and this community would come together two, three, four times a year and they'd have a big feast. Those are the earliest places we can find. And what would they do when they gathered together for those feasts? They'd worship. They would eat and they would worship. In human history and human experience, our eating and our worship are always connected. They're always combined. They always have a relationship to one another. And so if you go and you look at the way religion was practiced, it always involved some sort of consumption. So, Lady Wisdom, it's a longer story, but in Proverbs 9, what Jim read for us, Lady Wisdom there, what does it say? She has slaughtered her beast, she has mixed her wine. What does that mean? She's prepared a feast for anybody who wants to come to her house and enjoy the goodness of wisdom, the goodness of life. Right? And then later on in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking to this church in Ephesus, what does he caution them against? Sexual immorality, in particular in this passage. right? Because in the worship of the people around Israel, and in fact in Israel's worship, the things that happened were sex, Human sacrifice and animal sacrifice. Okay? Those are the three acts that you would do when you went to temple. But all of those ultimately are about who you worship, who you serve, who you believe is ultimate, who you believe is final. In Jesus' words, who you believe really has life. It's even in the Old Testament we see it. Adam and Eve, again, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. What is it that God actually gives them as an opportunity to either obey him or disobey him? 
fruit on a tree, something to eat. Cain and Abel, when they actually get mad at each other and Cain murders Abel, this is the first pair of brothers in the world, right? What is it that they're fighting over? A sacrifice that they were bringing to the Lord, which was food. A lamb through the field. Okay? Abraham, when he encounters these mysterious three visitors who come to him and tell him, you're going to have a child, what does he do for them? He sets a meal. Right? He slaughters the fattened lamb or whatever it was. <laughs> he makes all these takes. He creates this meal for them. Passover, the very central act of worship in Israel, what was it that God wanted them to do right at the Exodus? Eat. Eat a lamb. Even Jesus, when Jesus shows up to us, what does he call himself? Well, here in John 6, we know it's the bread, but look forward into Revelation. Look forward into his kind of pulling back the curtains into heaven and seeing the Lord himself. We see the one who's seated on the throne, and we see the river, which is the spirit, coming out of that throne. But who is the one that's right in there in the midst of it? It's the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who we see as Jesus here. But how does he appear? As a lamb who is slain. Right? As a lamb who is slain, as a sacrifice. Those sacrifices ended up as food. So what we eat is so vitally connected to who and to how we worship. It's all through the scriptures. It's all through human experience. It's even through today. <laughs> but what does Jesus do with that worship? You might be just a little bit grossed out because most of us have never been to a sacrificial service. <laughs> right? Hopefully nobody has like sacrificed a goat recently. Um, <laughs> we don't think about worship that way. But Jesus, in his mercy, takes that kind of worship. The Lord, in his mercy, removes and pulls out like, a, like somebody sucking the venom out of a snake bite. Pulls the violence out of worship. And what does he give us instead of animal carcasses? He gives us bread. Right? He says, my blood is enough. You no longer have to spill any blood. You no longer have to kill these animals in order to be one with the Lord. Instead, it's bread and it's the fruit of the vine. Jesus makes this sacrifice bloodless. And in that way, he shows, I think, that it's available to everybody. You don't have to own a cow or a goat or a sheep or a pigeon in order to come worship the Lord. It's the everyday food of bread. He shows that the sacrifice has been accomplished once and for all on the cross, that his sacrifice at his own death is effective not only in that moment and in that time, but across all time and all places, that his sacrifice cuts across past, present, and future and fills and enlivens all things. But we, the church, we go wrong when we downgrade it from bread to mere symbol or mere metaphor. And we just say, yeah, well, this stuff, 
it's just a sign. And it's really ultimately kind of just about how it makes you feel. It's not actually that important. When we do that, we, we sort of import our own cultural discomfort onto the scriptures. But here Jesus is in John 6 saying, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, there is no life in you. When we do this, we disconnect our worship of the Son from the very bodily acts of worship that have always been required. The apostles knew this. The early church knew this. And I, I don't know where you're at. I imagine some of you are kind of, we hear in, in, our, in the, the back of our mind kind of these debates between Protestants and Catholics or Orthodox, right? They say this is like, the transubstantiation or the bread sort of turns into the flesh of Christ and this kind of thing. And so I kind of go, well, what can we say about this? What can we actually say happens at the table? Right. And, I, and I would say two things. One, I, I think the debate about sort of transubstantiation is a little bit misguided because it puts it into scientific terms, in terms of like molecular transformation. And I just don't think that's the frame that Jesus or the scriptures or anything kind of has in mind. Right? We're not saying that this turns into meat. Okay? But we are saying that Christ is really present in the bread and in the cup. In every way that matters. In every way that matters. That, that by His grace, there's a prayer when we serve at the table. There's a prayer that says, Spirit, you come and do this. It's not magic words that we say that change anything. It's only the Spirit's grace. that that really is Jesus by the gift of the Spirit, that the Spirit does something in conjunction with our prayers and our worship to affect the change in kind of the lowly and everyday elements of bread and of wine. And part of the reason I go so deeply into this is because I want you to know that what we do here is miraculous. That what we do when we gather on Sundays, even when there's only 10 of you, even when the singing's off-key and the guitar player can't find the rhythm and the preaching is really subpar because for whatever reason, uh, you know, I mean, the prayers are just sort of lackluster. What happens here is this, like, objective miracle, not because our worship is so good or because the stream works great or the lights look awesome or anything, but it's there because Jesus said it would be there. It's there because of his promise. It's there because of his word. And so we only show up to rely on that and to lean into that truth that he said he would show up. So even if I don't feel it, and even if I don't know how, I'm going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, make me how you would have me to be. Let me be obedient in these things, even if I don't understand them. Even if I don't get it, even if I don't feel it, even if I don't see it for a little while. Lord, I trust that you said you're the bread of life, that you said to eat and to drink, and so I'm showing up to do exactly that. Because here's the thing, in pagan religion, and take too long, but I make the argument that it's in every religion that's out there, including secularism. In all of these other belief systems, the gods demand sacrifice of you. Okay? The gods demand sacrifice of you. True confessional here. Miriam was sick this week. 
I got into this stupid show <laughs> about fitness, <laughs> some reality show. And here's what happens in this show. <laughs> a trainer, a.k.a. a god, and they literally call them fitness gods <laughs> in this reality show, right? Somebody who has a, like, quote-unquote, perfect body enters the world of the schlubby rest of us, right, by putting on weight incarnates into <laughs> an overweight person, and then they have to work to get it off together. But how does that trainer act towards the person who's needing to lose weight? Pushing them, yelling at them, screaming at them to get up the hill, guilting them, doing, pulling every button and twisting every little thing in their lives, reminding them of why they did this in the first place. And I mean, it's cruel. It's cruel watching it. But what I'm reminded of is this is this trainer God demanding the sacrifice of effort and will and desire and do you really want it on this person who needs to lose weight so they can be healthy and neurotic. And I mean, who they are at the end of that, I have no idea. <laughs> but this happens all over the place. Our gods desire and require sacrifice of us, whether it's hard work or being smart, or playing the market just right. Our gods desire and require things of us. In Christianity, the God actually becomes the sacrifice. Do you see the difference? He actually becomes the sacrifice, the thing that we can eat and drink in order to have life. And when he does that, he purifies and transforms us so that by his grace we might become like him, offering our own lives up in a sacrifice, not of atonement, but of thanksgiving. Jesus' own words here in chapter 6, I, I just... This gets me every time. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If everyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He gives this bread not for the life of Israel, his chosen people, not for the life, the life of his disciples, his best friends, he gives it for the life of the world. And you're a part of that. He's given his life for your life. He gives his flesh for your life. But the turn here is that because we eat that flesh, because we drink that blood, because we come into his life, we become like him and are also sent into the world to be given for the life of the world that after we come and we eat at this meal, remember, when you eat at a table with somebody, you become like them. When we come and eat at the table with our Lord, we become like him. And then as we go, we are the ones given to the world for the world's life. And that's, do you see what I'm saying? Is God sends you out for your neighbors, for your family, for the strangers that you encounter. He sends you out to be taken and blessed 
and broken and given. To serve and to love. To care for, to be disciplined, but not just to follow the rules, but so that others will come and know him. Jesus comes and is given for the life of the world so that we too might be for the life of the world. He is true food and true drink. He is life itself. And no place else that you look for it is ever going to give it to you. And so the call today, the challenge, is that we would return people to the source. As you come to the table, can you say honestly, I'm coming not just because other people are coming, but I'm coming because I want to encounter my Lord. Because I need to encounter my Lord because I'm desperate for the grace that I know is only in Him. And then how can you take that into your world? Can you do it by opening up your own table? By extending hospitality to somebody who's in need? Can you do it by reclaiming the sacredness of your own meals? I love my daughter, but her prayers at mealtime really need some work. It's the three-word prayer, dear Jesus, amen. Just, it's like she's got the bookends. She's working on the content, right? And she insists on saying this every dinner time, right? Dear Jesus, amen. Okay, let's go. All right? But sometimes our prayers are just like that. Dear Jesus, bless us with you for today, amen. Can we actually reclaim some of the sacredness of that space? To say, Lord, I trust that you are bread, that you are true drink. I trust that as I come to this meal, I know that it's not the Eucharist, I know that it's not the Lord's Supper, but it is this regular sort of gathering where I open myself up to the mercy and to the goodness of God. So here's the challenge. Actually pray for your lunch today. Actually pray that God would bless that food and use that food to make you true food and true drink for the world around you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this feast for the fact that you have called us to really and truly encounter you. And Jesus, I'm as uncomfortable saying that as others may be hearing it. But I also trust, Lord, that you don't give empty words. And so I pray that as we come to the table today as your people, that we would do it with a confidence and a knowledge that our hope is in you. That you will meet us, that you will meet our needs, and that as we discover you really present here, Lord, that you will catch us up into the goodness of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The communion supper. In